in 2003, the year before the Athens Olympics. I was selected in the Australian Four that went to the World Championships and finished fourth in the world. Um, I was pretty excited about the prospects of racing the Athens Olympics the next year. Went to the selection trials and stuffed them up and ended up being asked to be reserve. And so you tour and travel with the team for three months, but you don't get to race at the Olympic Games. You just have to be ready, warming up every day, preparing every day. As though you're going to race, as though someone, in case someone rolls an ankle or wakes up with a sniffle, and then you you don't race. Um, and doing that every day is a pretty tough, thankless um, and pride-swallowing task. You really learn how to check your ego. Welcome to So What's Next, the podcast covering the transition out of sport for some of Australia's best athletes. This is the final episode of season two for So What's Next and more, it's the last episode of 2020. So to round out what has been such an incredible first year of the podcast, two seasons, 16 episodes and 17 incredible guests, I would like to welcome James Chapman. James is an Australian rower. He has an abundance of achievements. Just to rattle some of them off, came second at the 2011 World Championships, first at the 2012 Munich World Cup and Lucerne World Cup, second at the 2012 London Olympic Games and first at the 2013 Sydney World Cup. So there is a huge amount of achievements that James has. He has gone on to achieve a Bachelor of Business, uh, majoring in Accounting and Law. He's now got a Master's of Coaching Psychology, which he does talk about just finishing up, which is really exciting. And he's now sitting as the leadership and culture consultant at Maximus International, which Maximus International, just basically ripping what was on his LinkedIn, is a future-focused consultancy that offers leadership development and organisational services to some of the biggest businesses in Australia. So James is just a perfect fit for that role. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. So let's get straight into it. Thank you so much, James, for joining. You're welcome, Jamie. It's nice to be here. I'm very excited to round out the show with uh, your episode this season. It's been a, quite a few weeks trying to get you on board, so it's, it's good to finally get you here. Yeah, it's been a busy time for so many people with this COVID experience in 2020, and like everyone's finding it really tough to make time for things that we'd love to be doing, like having these kind of conversations. So it's exciting to be here. Do you have any big exciting Christmas plans coming up? I do have some really exciting Christmas plans coming up. I'm going to do absolutely nothing, which is very exciting this year. It's been crazy of not only with work and generally trying to survive in 2020 but also I completed my master's degree which is at my last exam last week and last paper due so that's been six years of study it's been enormous as a post like time and experience so that's a huge thing to tick off which means I can sit on the beach and go for a surf guilt-free not thinking about studying or uni I usually go camping most Christmases, but with all the campsites being booked out so quickly this year, I think I'm just going to do a staycation in Sydney, which is probably going against the grain, but it'll be cool. It'll be fun. It'll be nice to chill out. I think I'm pretty much going to do the same thing, chill out in WA and not do much, which I'm really looking forward to. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) So I'd like to start off by asking guests, what was your childhood like? How did you actually get into, in this case, rowing? Well, my childhood was... I guess like a lot of Australian boys, I was very focused on sport. I'd like, I loved playing cricket in the backyard. I, I loved my local footy team. Um, so I did all of those through like primary school and high school and 
I was playing cricket until about age 13 or 14 and I enjoyed it, but I wanted to try something new and have a new experience. And the school I went to offered rowing as a sport. And one of the things that was super cool when you're like 13, 14 is to see the, the big older boys at the school that were tall and fit and strong and just go, wow, I want to be like that one day. I want to look that strong and look, be that tall. And, and so I thought, what if, why don't I just try it out? Why don't I just spend a summer trying out rowing rather than playing cricket? And so that's how I kind of started into it, just because I saw these older people which were role models for a 13 to 14-year-old boy. And interestingly, I was really bad at it. Horrible, in fact. Like there was five teams in my age group or year group, and I was always in the, in the fifth team. And I was quite okay at cricket. I was quite okay at football. And it was, I think it was because I wasn't good at it that I was pretty determined to keep going at it and to try and get better and better. And so I ended up only winning one race in my whole high school rowing career, which was the final race of year 12. That's one to win. Um, yeah, the one to win. The only one that counts really in the end. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it was pretty, that was a pretty cool experience. And then after I left high school, um, I enrolled in uni, which I probably shouldn't have done because I was terrible at it for the first two or three years after high school and I wasn't really interested in it, wasn't really attentive. But I did want to join my local rowing club, like a bat, a fully battler situation with an old wooden club held together by paint and staples and mm-hmm. rowing, yep. rowing paraphernalia nailed to the wall. And um, But it just gave me another experience during the week to beyond just going to university and I was working at a steak restaurant and a petrol station and it just gave me another dimension to my weeks and my life after school, after high school. Travelling interstate to rowing competitions to like little country towns and it just, that's how I kind of got into it and went from there. When did you see the Olympics as something you could attain? Mm. I think there's two parts to that question. One was when did I first get excited by the idea of it and then did it feel like it's, then when did it feel like it was attainable? Um, I remember when I was in year 12 and not long prior to winning that first race of my whole life, it was the, it would have been the 96 Atlanta Olympic Games. And so I would have been in year 11 at that stage. And the awesome foursome, which was reasonably famous in Australia, Australian sport around that time, won an Olympic gold medal in Atlanta. And I remember lying on the lounge room floor at my mum and dad's house watching that race and watching them win gold. And I was starting to get better at my rowing and I was like, I want to do that one day. I want to be like in that boat out in front trying to win a gold medal for Australia. And I enjoyed my rowing, but it wasn't really something that felt like it was in reach in, but I was just like, it inspired me. It's like, I want to do that. It wasn't until I was about 20, 20-ish when I got selected into the Australian under-23 rowing team and got asked to go to the under-23 world championships over in Europe. And, and through that process, you have to race against and race with some of the senior guys in some of the selection trials and you know just seeing that you could match it with them for parts of the race like you weren't really competitive with them when you look back at it but you just you're on the same racetrack as them you see them in the lanes next to you you kind of match it with them for some parts of the race um you're like yeah maybe i could maybe if i kept going at this i could continue to be there so just those little those little bits of um, optimism that get fed into your training and your racing throughout your career um help you realize that it's possible Mm, definitely I'd imagine seeing and I remember the same in skating you see the older athletes and you're like yeah I could be that I could beat them mm. even though it does take some time um, <laughs> it takes longer than you think doesn't it it does <laughs> that age what did your actual training regime and recovery look like as an athlete moving especially from that high school rowing club through to the more like senior years of your career 
What was really interesting, what was really interesting about um, where I was in my rowing career was I was in the middle of this transition from rowing being a sport where you were expected to take a professional approach to it, but you had to have a job, you had to have a part-time or a full-time job to sustain yourself to a transitioning to being a sport where you were fully funded at the AIS as a living athlete. And so the first, probably the first eight years of my rowing career, I was working full-time at Westpac. I was studying my undergraduate degree in the evenings. Um, and so my training regime was, you know, 4.30, the alarm would go off. I'd be down at practice by 5.15 for warm-up. Practice would start at 5.30 for a couple of hours until 7.30-ish. Um, shower, change, catch public transport or cycle into the city for work, do the day's work, finish, um, try and finish at a reasonable hour and go back to the training sheds and do a second session at the end of the day on the nights that I didn't have to go to uni. And then Saturdays and Sundays were pretty full of training, like we'd go out to Penrith in Sydney where the um, Olympic Rowing Centre is or on the Nepean River and spend two or three sessions out there on the Saturday and Sundays to build up, you know, build up training capacity and build up volume from the time you spent during the week whilst you're at work during the day. And then the second half of the career, we went to full time. So you're expected to be doing three training sessions most days of the week. Um, so one in the morning, one around the middle of the day, one around the end of the day. Working became increasingly harder to do to fit that in. Um, we were funded by AIS and through Rowing Australia to, to live at the AIS in Canberra or to have a small a small stipend which would help you with your, your rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was pretty massive. And then we'd go away to Europe every year to compete in the circuits over in Europe. And same thing, it'd be three sessions most days. And so recovery was like a lot of food and a little bit of sleep in between each of those three sessions a day. Um, and there'd be other things you know, filtered in throughout the week, like ice bars at the end of each day in Canberra, which in the middle of Canberra when it's bloody cold, <laughs> it's really hard to motivate yourself to get into the ice bath. Yep. Um, yep. But as we went into that more professional cycle of three sessions a day, we had Sundays off, so Sundays was a recovery day. And other than that, some physio and massage during the week when you, because you always had needles, you always had something that was sore or tight or needed attention. Yeah. Is that pretty common, not being able to work, doing three sessions a day? Is that kind of the standard for rowing across the globe? Yeah, I guess that's a really good, important insight into the story I just shared. Um, During that first half of my rowing career, you could be competitive to an extent by still having a full-time job and training before and after work. But then as as we got into the second half of my career, so post the Beijing Olympics, post 2008 onwards, A lot of countries had stepped up their training to being more full-time and having more of a full-time approach. So, for example, the Great Britain team getting ready for 2012 Olympics, their teams were fully funded and they were full-time athletes. Um, New Zealand was fully funded. Um, the German and Italian teams, they're in the defence, they're considered as being in the defence forces and so they're fully funded, so they're training full-time. And so when those other countries are training full-time and you're not, they have a competitive edge just in terms of the amount of training and capacity and volume they could put into their bodies. And so we were no longer able to compete unless we started training more. And so we just had to train more to be competitive, which also meant there wasn't time for work. There wasn't time to have a job. Yeah. Um, and, we, and we weren't really, there's no money. There's no prize money in rowing. There's no sponsorship from corporates um, at, this, at that stage. And it was always just, you know, trying to steal a few Whitbixes from the bottom of the Whitbix container at the AIS and um, just trying to find ways to get by. I'd imagine with those sorts of sacrifices, maybe the team would have changed around that time as well. Not everyone would be willing to put everything on the line for a sport. Did your team change much during that time or was it like 
the foursome stayed the same, the eight-man team stayed the same. Yeah, it did change it a fair bit because there were some people that you know, wanted to focus on their careers and not sacrifice their careers for full-time training or full-time competition. And so that, that meant some people self-selected themselves out of the program and out of the training um, regime. It made some people want to be in, want to join the program as well because they didn't want to have to work, work a retail job or a hospital job and they wanted to get straight into training full-time and live off the AIS scholarship funds. Um, and... That happened because of this Australian rowing selection process. They pick each year based on performance of that year as opposed to the four-year cycle. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, to answer your question, it meant that some people opted out of the program or found it really hard to do both, to work and train. So as an athlete, you've had some extraordinary achievements. When you look back at your time as an athlete, what are you most proud of? Are there any standout achievements for you? Mm. Yeah, so there's some pretty... So the big ones would have to be, as an athletic performance, would have to be, first of all, getting the opportunity to represent my country. I mean, it's just such a privilege and it's such a common phrase that you hear from athletes. But I think the reason why it's a privilege to me is, is what's important here. And the privilege comes in that you've had, well, first of all, your country's chosen you to, to represent them. They've selected you over other people that have wanted to be selected to be the person as a part of a team to represent the country against other countries. You go overseas and you line up next to other countries who have selected their best to represent themselves and you get a chance to compete against and match yourself against the best from other countries. And so when you're competing at that really pointy edge of performance, you know you have to bring your best. You have to bring your best under under performance pressure and you have to prepare for that, which is just a different level of competition. And so it's a privilege to be asked to do that above other people that have also wanted to do that. Um, but it's also a privilege to then also be the person that's representing the people that have supported you along the way. So, you know, your parents growing up who they who fed and watered and gave you lifts everywhere. Um, your friends that have been there when you've had a shit time with selections or had a shit time with injuries. You know, broader parts of your support network and community like aunties and uncles or whatever else it might be that have put time and effort and care into your training and preparation and career that you, know, you, you get a chance to, I guess, validate their effort and the support and, and often make them feel you know, proud to have been a part of that journey along the way. So that privilege, I think, is pretty special. And to be able to represent my country to, as a way to demonstrate that, that support they put in is part of my rank career that I'm incredibly proud of because mm-hmm. um, I felt like I represented them well. You know, I won that final race in Year 12, like I mentioned before, which was the New South Wales schoolboys head of the river. Um, that was a significant moment in my life because it, I transitioned from being, I felt like I transitioned from being someone who was trying really hard and being a contender to someone who could compete and win and prepare for something and win it. And then representing at under-23s, we won a silver medal at the World Championships. We also, we, we won that under pretty trying circumstances. And then from there, I went on to... Um, be reserve in the Athens Olympics, competing in the men's eight in Beijing. We came sixth in the final there, last in the final, unfortunately. But, you know, it was an honour to be asked to be an Olympian, um, but disappointing the performance that we, we did display those Olympic Games. And then uh, went on to compete four years later at the London Olympics and came away with a silver medal. So they were significant achievements for me. Um, the other big one for me, which is probably a legacy which feels real in that uh, the performance of this crew is, continues to be at a different level. When I joined uh, the senior rowing ranks 
for the state-based competitions. New South Wales hadn't won our interstate competition in 20 years. Victoria had dominated winning, winning 17 of the 20 years and I think Western Australia won one year, ACT won one year, but there was but New South Wales hadn't won it in 20 years. A few of us that were coming through at the same time, around the same age, got to the point where we were frustrated and wanting to turn that tide. And we got together and we discussed a few of the leaders in the group, how are we going to turn this around? How are we going to change this continual defeat that we're experiencing against the Victorian crews? And we established some training camps. We established some ways to, to bond the crew culturally, bond the squad, I should say, culturally. We changed the selection process by driving it from inside the crew. And... In 2008, we won the interstate race by 0.23 of a second. Jeez. So nothing at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then we continued to apply this formula of preparation and training camps and bonding to the following years. And we ended up winning um, five in a row, which is an equal record number of wins for New South Wales, which is a pretty significant achievement. And then we went on to win two more. So we won seven in a row of this interstate race, which is a hotly contested, highly competitive and passionate competition for all people representing their states and also very, very close racing between New South Wales and Victoria always. And although the Victorians um, beat us in 2016, since then the New South Wales crew, since I've retired from the, the squad and from rowing, New South Wales crew has continued to compete and win most years. There's a culture within that crew, which is I'm passionate. It's turned from the race being something that we had to do each year for New South Welshmen to be in a race that New South Welshmen love to do each year mm-hmm. and love to prepare for and race in. And so being part of the, the group of athletes who turn that around, not only for the results and winning what's called the King's Cup, but also being a part of the group of people that enabled others to see racing for New South Wales as being something they could be passionate about. And that's also extended to the women's crew and um, they've won a couple now and they're a really exciting crew to watch and they're passionate about, they've been passionate for many years, but it's, they've also turned the tide there against Victoria too, which Victoria won it, I can't remember how many years in a row it was for the women's crew, but it was a huge number of years as well. And, and so it feels like a legacy into the state New South Wales rowing programs. For anyone that hasn't watched Head of the River is... It's a huge achievement and I can see why that would have sparked some enthusiasm leading later into your career. What were some of the challenges I guess you faced as an athlete? Were there any setbacks or was injuries a a thing for you during your time in sport? There's definitely challenges and setbacks. I think the challenges with rowing are the hours required. It's every day, every day of the year for 52 weeks a year. It's just nonstop and it's two to three sessions a day every day. So it's that's the challenge in rowing. When you've got other things in your life that are important as well, like sleep, <laughs> yeah. like, <laughs> like um, you know, social connection with your family, your partners or your friends. So partners, I'm not saying that like I'm engaging in polygamy. I'm just saying like <laughs> you might have, um, you know, you, you just have different relationships along the way. But um, yeah, so you've got, um, you've just got so many different parts of your life which you need to engage in as well, your education, your work, and you still have to do two or three training sessions a day the balance yeah well just to be able to maintain the training in order to be competitive you just can't be competitive and run with that without doing the work and so you find yourself challenged by that because there'll be always what things wanting to pull you in other directions mm-hmm. had some setbacks like I had some um had a couple of stress fractures in my ribs at some a couple of stages which are pretty debilitating like you know breathing sleeping laughing are all rowing painful. yep <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah well you can't row when you got that um you have to have that's about six weeks off and which is it's not an uncommon injury for a row but once you get it you realize how 
debilitating it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you end up spending a lot of time on a stationary bike in an upright position supported by uh, like a squat bar frame kind of thing. But um, the other setbacks which are difficult in rowing, which I had quite a few experiences of, unfortunately, but I also learned a lot from them, was was just the continual selection challenge. So you, know, you, tr- you go to trials each year. Your crews were selected based on your performance at, during throughout the course of that year, but also at those selection trials. And so, you know, for example, in 2003, the year before the Athens Olympics, I was selected in the Australian Four that went to the World Championships and finished fourth in the world. Um, I was pretty excited about the prospects of racing the Athens Olympics the next year, went to the selection trials and stuffed them up and ended up being asked to be reserve. And so you tour and travel with the team for three months, but you don't get to race at the Olympic Games. You just have to be ready, warming up every day, preparing every day. As though you're going to race, as though someone, in case someone rolls an ankle or wakes up with a sniffle, and then you you don't race. Um, and doing that every day is a pretty tough, thankless um, and pride-swallowing task. It really learn how to check your ego. And then 2005, we didn't make the finals. 2006, we were favourites to win the gold medal at the World Champs. We finished fourth. 2007, I got deselected from the men's eight. And so just this constant up and down of selection or non-selection, um, always on a fine edge. That's the other big setbacks that you have to not face, not only face in terms of which crew you're in and the support you have around you, but also your like an injury, you've really got to look inside yourself and think about how you're going to respond to that kind of adversity. Yeah, I can't imagine what that would have been like having to travel around with the people that were going to race and not being able to. I can imagine that would have just been heartbreaking every day. Yeah, I'm quite surprised to hear that. I mean, it does make sense, but it's hard to wrap your head around. Like four of you have just gone and competed brilliantly at a tournament and then they go back to the selection process. It's not like a these guys work really well together, let's keep them together. I thought maybe it would be more like a um, groups of athletes going through as generations. Yeah. So it's that's hard. That's a really tough um, thing to go Jamie, through. It's a, really, it's a really fair point and it's, and it's probably those two different schools of thoughts when it comes to selections in rowing. One is let's keep a group together and if they're performing well, let's try and keep them together mm-hmm. and so they can gradually improve and go from a fourth one year and to hopefully get better and do th- get third signal first next year. Whereas when I was competing, Rowing Australia adopted the point of view that, that we got fourth that year. We want to win gold. Fourth isn't good enough. Let's start again and see what see what, uh, see what what combination we get, which might get us better than a fourth. I'm probably more of the point of view to keep a crew together and keep a squad together. Um, I think that there's consistency that comes with gradual improvements. And I think it's unrealistic to expect wholesale jumps in performance that you get from changing one or two people every year. But it's just two different schools of thoughts. And it also, it also it's not just a philosophy, though. It also really depends on you know, which athletes you have available to you. It does depend on what their training preparation has been like. If you had someone that's been injured for a significant portion of the year, do you pick them, expect them to get back to where they were? Or do you have to recognise that they probably won't get back to where they were and I have to I have to put someone else in. So there's always context in those kind of decisions. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it is a very tough, I guess, selection policy when you're constantly under that selection pressure without the time and space to make gradual improvements. Would you recognise rowing as an individual sport or a team sport? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes to both. Um, <laughs> it sounds like yeah. a very individual-based uh, sport, like the selection process is based on each individual. It's not like the team are qualifying, the team are doing this. It sounds like everyone's in it on their own and then at the end of the day there's four of you that get in the boat. It is, it is a bit like that. 
but but again, I guess there's some nuance to it. So you know, your your trainers. So for for example, at the moment, the men's and women's national training centers um, for rowing, there's 25 athletes in each of those programs, mm-hmm. and they'll pick a, a pair, a four, and an eight, and a quad, and a double scale, and they'll pick all these different boat classes. And so your trainers are squad, and you know your performance is being individually tracked the whole time as well. So you know, your scores in the rowing machine, your scores in the in the weights room, your fitness levels through lab testing, everything's being individually tracked and monitored. Then at the same time, you'll put you'll put be put into boats like pairs or fours or eights, and the combinations that you form with people in those crews also makes a difference. Yeah. So combinations of people will work better together than others. They look to individualize those crew boats as much as they can by putting you all in pairs and seeing how you perform in pairs. Because if you have some eights that race down the course, it might be hard to identify if there's one person that's standing out or if there's one or two people that are being carried a little bit more as passengers than the others. So, yeah. so they have to try and find a way to individualise it. Um, so they do that in pairs. And then once they get all the results in pairs, then they start to build, look to build fours from those pair combinations. And they also try and look to build eights from the combinations in the fours. So, but then once you get selected as a crew, then you are a crew. And then you prepare as a crew from that selection decision onwards to a world championship to an Olympic game. So then you have to do you do have to develop that combination, that teamwork, and you do learn in rowing from a very early age, but also it continues to get reinforced. The criticality of teamwork, of not just alignment in terms of the timing, but also an alignment in terms of the way you're thinking, the way you're feeling about the boat, the times in the race to push and the times in the race to try and get into a sustainable rhythm. So, so much becomes about the way that you're working in unison. Um, and it makes such a difference when you are versus where you are not. So yes to both, it is individualised to get into a crew, but then once you're in the crew, then you have to work very closely as a team. It's such a unique sport in that with, I don't know, let's say something like hockey, you can watch the players individually. You don't see them doing the same action, the same movement in unison. It's such a unique sport having that precise level of teamwork. You don't really see it in most other team sports, so it's really interesting. And what's interesting about that in rowing is everyone looks like they're doing the same thing, but there's people doing, will be doing slightly different things because my height and weight will be different to yours. The reach and length, the parts of the stroke where you're applying more force and peak force will be slightly different. So you have to try and match those two. Yeah, that stuff as a outsider, I <laughs> definitely haven't recognised that. <laughs> but I learn new things. I want to understand a little bit more about now we're, we're starting to kind of step away from the sport. How has the way you've defined success as a sports person and now as a business person changed? Has it changed at all? When you're talking about de- defining success, you mean how do I define the success from my rowing career, of my rowing career or just success in general? Success in general. So I think a lot of athletes, they'll look at their success in sport based on gold medals or times, mm-hmm. um, but then how they translate success out of sport yeah, I'm interested to know if that, like how you define success in general, if it's changed at all. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, I think one of the things that happens with um, sports people is that we often define success by our performance and performance only. And that can include improvements and incremental improvements in your training and preparation, but still how you're performing. What I've learned since leaving the sport is, is and you know this intuitively once you look back on it, but success is not limited to performance only there's other ways to think about success and achievement and that is that there's a performance component which is the outcome but that that implies that there's an end state and there's a finality to the process but but if you go broader than that success can be defined by things that we're gradually getting better at 
Mm-hmm. So things we're developing and, like, you know, we can define success and achievement and goals and objectives by what am I improving and developing and gradually getting better at over time and over a long period of time rather than there being a point or a milestone or a performance. So having development goals and defining success by what I'm developing at. And there's also another way to think about this. Well, sorry, it's an additional way to think about this, which is success is something I'm, is, is the ways that I'm learning. So what am I learning about and getting better at in terms of learning and understanding before I even get to the stage of developing and applying it to get better at a practice, a behaviour, a capability, whatever it might be. So so there's performance objectives, which we can be successful at. There's developmental objectives we can be successful at, but there's all can just be learning objectives. And, and it's it demonstrates the breadth of our human experience so much more rather than being defined by performance outcomes only to being what am I getting better at and what am I learning about? And it can be work-based, it can be formal education, it can be life experience, but there's just so much more to our, our lives and purely performance. And as we know from sport as well, there's ways to get outcomes which are right, the right ways to go about getting outcomes, and there's also the wrong ways to get outcomes. So a simple example of that is a drug cheat. Just because you get a performance doesn't mean you've done it the right way. So thinking about it, success is thinking thinking about and recognizing success is um, there's a lot more to it than just getting an outcome. Yeah, I agree. I uh, as an athlete, I wouldn't agree. I was like, yes, if I get that particular score, I have succeeded. But yes, as I've moved away from sport, I've realized that you are correct. It is um, about getting that more general knowledge and experience, and there is more parts to than just the score at the end of the day. Now, I'm very excited to get into your post-sport. So to quote you to you, um, in 2017, in the there was a Rowing Australia article, uh, which was a media release about your retirement. And you said, I've been part of the senior Australian rowing team for over 15 years. The time was right to retire. The sport and its community has been a monumental part of my life and who I am today. More than just an athlete, but part of the wider sport community sporting community which can add support enable and provide so much to family mates and teammates it sounds like your transition was planned can you tell me a little bit about your transition out of sport and into the world of business how that felt for you yeah i retired when i was 36 um in the lead up to the rio olympic games um i was training and preparing well and we finished um I can't remember exactly where I finished. I think it was third or fourth in the selection trials in the pairs. So finished reasonably high up in the selection process and still, you know, still able to perform and race at that international level. But I just, I could sense two things. One, my capacity to put myself into the red zone as often as I needed to, to continually improve was getting harder and harder. And so there's always ways to continually improve, include technique and understanding the strategy of the race, but the physical requirements of the sport was I was finding myself going there, going to that going to that space less and less or less often. And the other part was there was other parts of my life that I wanted to experience. So I wanted to move into some new experiences like a working career, professional career, um, starting to think about the kind of relationships that would enable a family in the future, those kind of things. So it was planned from that perspective that I could sense that my capacity to train for another four years after the Rio Olympic cycle and also the other things I wanted to achieve in my life, I just knew that that time had come, that that time had come for me. Does that mean you found it easy leaving the sport? I imagine committing that much time and energy and day in, day out, three times a day training, that kind of been an easy transition out? It was not. Um... I 
I had been in the sport for so long that it had become such an integral part of my life and also an integral part of my identity. You know, I had 12 years um, experience as a banker, as an institutional banker at Westpac at that stage. I had a degree, undergraduate degree in accounting and law. I'd started my MBA. I had, I had plenty of things in my life which was support around me to be excited about the future, my future careers, my future vocations and prospects and all those kind of things. And I still found it really hard, which was, yeah, which was, which I found really surprising. I wasn't expecting it to find it. I wasn't expecting to find it as hard as I, as I did. And so recognizing that not being aware of the significance of the change in my life is something that I want to share with other athletes as they're getting closer to retirement. Um, actually not even getting closer to retirement at the start of their careers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think just having the sport as part of your identity and then stepping away is such a weird change. I remember when I left skating, just not not having that routine, it's almost like, even though you've still got those things to be excited for, not having that strict routine and uh, the known coming up, so you know what tournaments are coming up, you know what your training is going to be. Stepping into like this world of decisions and making your own choices is very different. Since you've stepped away from competing, what do you think are some of the resources that people could put in place to support athletes? The way I've been thinking about this and the advice I share with athletes, or actually anyone going through transition, is sport puts so much structure, as you just mentioned, but also so much scaffolding around your life for so many different reasons. So one of the things you have about sport, like you mentioned, is you've got, you know exactly what you want to work on every day and you know exactly what you want to prepare for in terms of a competition, whether it's at the end of the year or in four years' time or at the end of the week, you've, you've got these very specific milestones, goals, and objectives you're working towards. First of all is to think about the objectives and goals you want that are inclusive of sport, but also broader than sport. So what are the other things you'd like to work towards in life? Doesn't mean you have to set a five-year plan or whatever it is. I, I personally don't do that, but also just being aware of what those things are and what things are in place that are helping you move towards the things that you want in your life. Also, one of the things I learned about the sporting experience was not only do you have those objectives and the structures that go, the structure that goes along with that, but you also have a ready-made social network that you up to training with every day. So your training partners, your coach, people that you see every day and say, how was the weekend? What are you up to? What are, what are we doing this weekend to catch up? You know, you, you've got a social conversation. You can talk about stuff that's happening in the news or some shit show you're watching on TV last night. Whatever it is, you've got conversations with people. You suddenly lose that social network that's around you. Mm-hmm. You lose that level of engagement. You lose that ready-made social scene. And so there's that's a significant part of it. You also lose that challenge that comes from being engaged in incrementally improving at something that you care about. And you also you also lose that physical stimulus, which is important, which we know from plenty of research is important for our mental health as well as our physical health. And so what my advice and what resources are in place are sport gives you all those things in one package. And you're not going to get that from one package when you leave sport. You're not going to get that from your job. You're not going to get that from a community group that you're in. But you need to see it as a portfolio of things or areas of things to put those things in place. All those things that you love about sport and that you get from sport that give you satisfaction, that give you stimulation and that help you feel like you're progressing in your life, you're not going to get them all in one package. But how do you think about each of those parts of your life that you want to put in place and set them up? I'd also say finances as well. Be really, really think think a lot about your finances. You, know, you you will be able to get a job, you'll get something, but finances and money is so difficult when you're an athlete, especially when you're an amateur athlete. 
more so when you're an amateur athlete. It really does limit your choices if you don't put some of that stuff in place once you retire about where you want to live, what kind of place you want to live, what kind of things you want to have in your life. So I'd also strongly recommend athletes to start putting plans in place for that. That's a really good point. I don't actually think anyone's touched on that. Like they've talked about lack of funding, but having like the financial, I guess not stability, but plans in place to make sure that you are comfortable when you leave the sport from a financial perspective is not something that's been mentioned yet. So it's, it's a good point. The other- so so as, an exa- as an example on that, I, you know, I didn't work for the last two and a half years of my rowing career because I was living off savings from my time as working at Westpac. The day I retired from sport, I didn't really have any money and I had some savings but not a lot to live off and you're just seeing them whittle away each week. And so I got back to rowing coaching at my local club but I was 36. I didn't have a. I was living on my sister's couch. Um, I was working a few hours, a few hours here and there, coaching rowing, um, being paid by the hour as a casual, living off each of those hourly pays week to week. And it took me six months to land a full-time job at the kind of company and the level that I wanted to work at. And even still, that was that was about half of what that job was about half of what I was earning when I finished up in banking. And it took six months to get there. So for six months, I was living in between rentals or sister's couch or mates' places, mm. and living off week to week. And it's just not the way you want to be living your life when you retire from sport. Because you see, you're looking forward to your retirement from sport being oh, I'm going to be able to get on with my life, and there's going to be all these exciting things I can do, like get a job and suddenly go to a coffee shop and pay for coffee, or go on a weekend holiday, or have a go overseas. Even COVID aside. And suddenly you're going, I'm waiting for my next pay packet for casual employment. And this is really adds to that challenge and that, that sense of depression or non-clinical depression that you might experience when you retire. It's demoralizing, yes. Mm. It's, it, must, it would be really hard. I'm, I'm very fortunate that when I retired, I, I mean, I still was working as a casual. I was still like a university student, but I was living at home. Mm. So for myself, it wasn't that much of a shock but I can imagine especially people that have come off like AFL players or something that it is their full-time income to not getting that anymore it and still trying to live that lifestyle would be a massive shock for athletes you've stepped into a role so your role was leadership and culture consultant yeah at Maximus International you've stepped into a role where you're helping other businesses develop their leadership skills and organizational services how has sport paved the way for you going into that role what are the sorts of lessons and skills that you actually learnt from sport? One of the reasons why I've got into this industry and into this work is because I've had some incredible rowing coaches who were able to tap into, tap in and inspire and motivate athletes to extend themselves beyond what they perceived was their potential. Mm-hmm. And I worked at a organisations in corporate where you had people being paid millions of dollars as leaders of organisations, and they there were some environments which were which created anxiety and stress and limited people's capacity to perform. I had some fantastic leaders in banking, um, but there was also some throughout the organisation which weren't so great, and I wanted to understand a lot more about it. And so sports taught me a lot about what it means to have a cohesive team. How do you get people adding to each other's environment and adding to each other's experience so the performance is improved with the whole group? Sports helped me understand a lot more about those interpersonal dynamics, personality traits, and it's also to me a lot about leadership and what it takes to be a leader, how complex leadership is as a capability and as a skill. Um, that it's not that archaic, masculine image of someone who's standing out in the front and people following. Mm. It's the way that you generate influence amongst others, it's understanding 
impact and the impact you want to have on the community. It's being able to think across multiple time horizons, just like you have to with sport. You have to think not just about training this week, but where you want to be performing in four years' time. And also the setbacks from adversity. We all experience adversity, not just as athletes, but in so many different ways in our life. But it's really obvious as an athlete when you experience some of these adversities, like a bad race or bad competition or a bad training period, an injury or a deselection. But it teaches you about adversity and the resilience required to respond from adversity and the courage to continue to try and continue to improve um, and put yourself out there again. So sports for me, and one of the reasons why I stayed in for so long is because it was such a great teacher. I agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> I Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And I think you summed it up really nicely saying that you need to look at your sporting career like um, a portfolio. So what aspects you can take away from your career in sport. I think you've summed it up really nicely before. I am interested to know now, you've been in your career for a little while outside of sport. What mm. legacy do you most hope to leave as a person? So it might not necessarily be as an athlete, but... How do you want to be, not to be morbid, how do you want to be remembered? Yeah, I think, I mean, and we talk about this as, with leaders that we work with all the time, you know, what's the legacy they want to leave and how do they want to be remembered? And it's certainly not morbid, it's just, you know, we, throughout the course of our lives, we, we come across people and we pass through each other's lives and then sometimes we don't have contact with them for a while afterwards because of the nature and the flow of our, our life. And it's how that person remembers you, even if you're off doing other things. And how I want to be remembered is someone who, who helped people build their awareness of themselves and the context around them, whilst also providing plenty of support and plenty of challenge to unlock that potential, unlock potential in themselves, to support them towards their aspirations, to help them develop pathways toward their, towards their goals and objectives. Just like so many great coaches and great leaders in my throughout the course of my working career have given me that gift that they've given me to, to unlock potential and achieve what I've been able to achieve so far. And so it doesn't matter about the articles I'm reading or the podcasts I'm listening to. It's all I'm thinking about how can I engage in experiences which help others unlock their potential and achieve what they want to achieve for themselves. That's great. I, it actually leads really nicely into my second last question. So there are a lot of athletes and I imagine a lot of business leaders that look up to you. Do you have any advice that you've received as an athlete or now that you've transitioned out of sport and into your like career now that you still carry with you? Yes, absolutely. Probably two pieces of advice which I've held on to. One is um, to never, ever underestimate the power of perseverance and secondly, that it's not the adversity that defines you, it's the way that you respond. I think that is a really important one in business as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we all, we're all experiencing it this year particularly, um, and the leaders particularly have a role to play there and a responsibility to play. Um, and the response is something that has to be understanding of context, has to have empathy for other people's experiences, but also has to help people move forward and forward in their lives and progress themselves and progress their, their businesses so it's multi-layered <laughs> a leader definitely plays a role in how people respond to adversity within a team i remember i was talking to georgia riddler who's the lead performance psychologist for the australian olympic committee and she was saying at i think it was the rio olympics um the coach would sit down and when there'd be issues with like the toilet or where there'd be like minor issues uh, how they responded so like cool, calm and collected would then reflect on how the athletes would then respond as well. So I think 
Um, mm. Leadership definitely plays a role in how people respond to adversity within a team. I have one last question for you and I finish off sure. every episode with it. What's next? What's on the horizon for you coming up? So I know Christmas break, yes, but a little bit longer <laughs> term than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a couple of things. One is that our business is supporting – our business supports leaders in running their organisations, whether they be corporate, government, not-for-profit, sporting organisations. And we're doing some really exciting things around both face-to-face and virtual experiences and combining a hybrid of the two which sometimes takes us takes individuals to places like Silicon Valley or innovation hubs that are expanding the world like Israel. So some really interesting experiences we're evolving there, which is a hybrid of both face-to-face and virtual, which is the way the world is moving towards. It's, I've started to see it popping up more in over, only in the last like week or two. So it's cool that you guys are on board with yeah, that. Yeah, it's really cool. And the other thing that's I think is really interesting is that Myself personally, we're really we're developing and formalising some really interesting experience people to learn about courage, resilience and peak performance, recognising that we're all experiencing those first two, courage and resilience, in so many parts of our lives. But we're also, as individuals, we're all performing to the best we can in so many different ways, mm-hmm. in our jobs, with our families and across our lives. But just like an athlete does, how do you just find ways to think about that little bit, um, a little bit of improvement, that a little bit of extra, extra awareness about all the things that support you performing at your best, whether it be a teammate, an employee, a mum, whatever it might be, that we can take a lot of these applications from sporting experiences and research around peak performance and the psychology of peak performance and shaping that into something that people can use. So really interesting space. I will put, I know we discussed this before we hit record, but I will put a link to your uh, business, your LinkedIn, if people have any questions um, or if they want to reach out. But I'd just like to say thank you so much for jumping on the call with me. I really enjoyed this episode and yeah, thanks for your time. You're welcome, Jamie. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much to James Chapman for joining us on this episode of So What's Next. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast this is the final episode of season two which is just wild it's been a a crazy year and I'm so grateful to all of the athletes that I've got to speak to throughout this year as always if you want to keep up to date with episodes as they get released and you're enjoying the podcast please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify or Stitcher and if you want to keep up to date about when the next episodes will be released head on over to our Instagram page at podcast so what's next and we'll be releasing more information on when season three goes out in 2021. So I would like to say a massive thank you to you all. I hope you enjoyed this entire year's worth of episodes, and I thank you all so much for your support. It, it means so much to me. I feel like it's too early to say Merry Christmas, but I will see you all next year. Thank you so much. 